0: Fam, welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. I am your host Dylan Bowman here with another conversation with a great trail runner. Today we are joined by Danny Moreno of Mammoth Lakes, California, the Hoka athlete who has blossomed into one of the best shorter distance and sub ultra trail runners in the sport. This summer, Danny managed to finish on the podium of both the Mont Blanc Marathon and OCC, two of the most important races in Europe and two of the most competitive races of the entire summer. And this weekend, Danny will also be taking the start line at the Flagstaff Sky Peaks 26K as part of the Golden Trail World Series, which she is competing in throughout the 2022 season. I felt like Danny has relatively quietly built a great career for herself. She's having an awesome season and it seemed like a perfect opportunity to have her on the pod. We talked all about Danny's background, her collegiate career. We talked about the competitive landscape in the global sub ultra trail scene. We talked about her coach and her training. We talked about her season so far and why she views it as a bit of a breakthrough, including details from the podium performances at both the Mont Blanc Marathon and OCC. It was a great conversation. Hope you really enjoy it. A big thank you to Speedland, the presenting sponsor of the Free Trail Podcast, the pinnacle of innovation in trail footwear, the boutique startup from Portland, Oregon. Speedland has single-handedly raised the standard for trail equipment. The SLHSV is out now. Removable Carbatex carbon plate, double boa fit system dyneema upper michelin outsole this shoe is a piece of art and i will only be available for a limited time get a pair at runspeedland.com before it's too late i'm meeting up with dave and kevin tomorrow down in norcal as we move towards the pre-order of our forthcoming shoe collaboration i am so proud to be part of the speedland team and massively look forward to showing the world what we've been working on together. Make sure you follow at RunSpeedland on Instagram for news when it drops. Finally, a big thank you to you for the outpouring of support from our amazing listeners after the announcements we made this week. It means a lot and we are very happy to finally have these changes out in the world that we've been working on and talking about for months behind the scenes. Now, we keep our heads down, keep charging forward, um, but if you wanna be part of the Free Trail community, consider joining Free Trail Pro, get tons of great perks, including Rest Day, our new member-only podcast that appears in a private RSS feed. Episode one went up yesterday, where myself and Katie Asmith rap out about the Mammoth Trail Fest, the Pikes Peak Ascent, Run Rabbit Run, and various Free Trail community topics. To join Free Trail Pro, visit freetrail.com, click the button at the top right corner, or visit the link in the show notes. Okay. Hope you enjoy hanging out with Danny Moreno. See you on the other side. Danny Moreno, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: Yes, it's a nice uh, Monday afternoon. We were just commiserating about winding down the workday. Where does uh, this podcast find you? It appears that you're in the Alps, but I uh, am getting, <laughs> the, getting the feeling that that's an artificial background.
1: Yeah, this this I actually took during uh, UTMB week. Um, but yeah, it's finding me in Mammoth Lakes, California after a long workday.
0: <laughs> yes. So, I mean... Quickly, tell me what you do for a living, because uh, this is something I'm always curious about as it relates to professional trail runners, you know, everybody's sort of, uh, you know, got fun side projects or side hustles, or in some cases, full fledged incredible careers. What is uh, what does that look like for you?
1: Yeah, so right now I work as a senior integration manager in construction software technology. And so as we acquire different companies, I partner with them and I help them integrate from an architecture product and design standpoint into our product.
0: Incredible. So is the company, it's not based in Mammoth Lakes, I bet. Are you working remotely?
1: Yes, it uh, it's based in Carpinteria. So I used to live in Santa Barbara before I moved here, and then uh, twenty twenty, like many people, I was able to start working remote, and so that's why I moved here. Yeah.
0: Okay, so you're you're already answering some of the questions I had because I, I got the <laughs> feeling just sort of like flicking through some of your background and through your Instagram and stuff it seems like you went to school in Santa Barbara at UCSB where you were a runner and i was curious how you ended up in Mammoth Lakes so maybe square that circle for us was it a covid induced uh you know sort of like run for the hills type situation for
1: you um Yes, yes and no. Like I grew up in L.A. and, you know, every summer my parents would take us up here and it was just always, you know, one of those highlights in my childhood to come up here. It always has been kind of a special place for me. And, you know, in high school or college more so, we would do altitude camps and then post-college um. I worked as an outdoor guide and so I'd be up here pretty often or just come up and do like solo camping trips. So it just always has been kind of a catalyst for me for, you know, change in my life and just a constant place for me to Uh, kind of fine tune what I'm I'm facing at that point in my life. And so, you know, I tried to move here a couple of times, didn't quite work out. And then, you know, I had my tech job. So that tied me to Santa Barbara post-college for quite a bit. And then finally, you know, 2020 came around and I asked my partner and he was on board. So that was pretty cool.
0: Awesome. It feels like a nature meets nurture moment here coming from the running background but it seems like you've always been somewhat of an outdoorsy and mountain sport oriented runner as somebody who spent time in mammoth lakes and it's you said that you were an outdoor guy does it feel that way that how you've ended up in trail running is kind of the perfect meeting point between high performance running which you've done for much of your life and also having this outdoorsy mountain person streak
1: yes i I would say though like growing up i wasn't in the outdoors that much because I grew up in LA. And so, you know, the few trips that we did take to the outdoors, I just loved it and embraced it, you know, those few times of year. And then, you know, when I was looking for a college, I was kind of looking for something with a little bit more space compared to growing up in the concrete jungle. Um, So that's what attracted me to Santa Barbara. And then kind of like once I had a driver's license too, I found myself kind of, you know, gravitating more and more to the outdoors.
0: Santa Barbara, man. We'll get around to talking more about that because I'm curious (laughs) about your collegiate career. That's one of the great places in the world, in my opinion. But you're now just like two weeks removed from an awesome podium finish at OCC. And I was so happy to see you have just another super strong international performance against some of the best sort of shorter distance trail ultra runners in the world. And I don't know, I just feel like you've quietly really built a solid resume and reputation for yourself in the sport. And that's why I was really excited to have you on the show and get to know you a little bit more, but maybe quickly just tell me how you're feeling a couple of weeks removed from that awesome performance at OCC. I know it was a bit of a stretch in the longest race of your career. So how are you feeling physically stepping beyond that ultra marathon distance?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, um, it is, it's kind of set in a bit. Yeah. And, uh, it's just like, um, just whenever I think about it, it just puts a smile on my face, to be honest, just a lot of years of, like you said, kind of working quietly, but also intentionally with my coach and just ticking off the boxes, um, at our own pace. And it's just cool to have it pay off and not just for me, but for everyone that is, you know, either believed in me or said they see potential in me. It just, it feels like. It wasn't just me out there that did that. So to do it for everyone that's ever been involved in my career just felt good. And then also just it also feeling like not so much the end of an era, but also just going into the next phase of my career It just felt like a really good jumping off point, you know?
0: Yeah. Awesome. What about physically, though? I mean, as somebody who has in recent years sort of built your resume and Sort of athletic identity around the sub ultra distances. Does it feel like? Are you feeling the the physical damage of stepping up in distance
1: a little bit? Yes, definitely. <laughs> I'm That's still recovery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I'm running, but I definitely am still tired. Like my body is moving, um, but I definitely am feeling it. And yeah, I was kind of just laughing with my coach, just you know, going into the race two, looking at the profile, and even just two years ago. I was like really intimidated by the profile. And so just, you know, going into it and being excited to take on that challenge. Um, but yeah, I mean the whole last 10, 12 K just feels like I blacked out. It was so painful. Um, but I'm also again, just really proud because I think a lot of that, you know, was training that helped me get through that. Just like a lot of back-to-back long runs and stuff. And then again, just, really focusing on building that foundation, uh, I think just really helped me that when I, you know, hit those moments and those walls, uh, I was able to face them.
0: Yeah, well, I want to hear all about that last 10 or 12k in addition (laughs) to, you know, the build up for it and all the other stuff that you alluded to, especially about how this is maybe a transition point in your career. But as a relatively recent follower of yours, like I said, I feel like you've quietly had one of the best seasons of any trail runner certainly of any american trail runner on the international circuit in 2022 and because you have specialized in shorter distance races it's no secret that the long stuff certainly gets more media attention especially here in the u.s so that's sort of the reason why i really wanted to have you on the show and i think it's always fun for me and i think for the audience as well to get the 30,000 foot view of the people that we have on. So if you don't mind, you've alluded to it a little bit, but maybe just tell us a little bit more about Danny Moreno, the, the person, your background, both as a, as a human being and with sport and how you ended up in the sport of trail running.
1: Yeah. Um, so I guess like, I don't know how back, how back you want to go, but you know, growing up
0: is relevant. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Okay. Um, you know, growing up, I played soccer, like a lot of trail athletes, you know, I listening to podcasts and getting to know people. I find those sports that allow you to do horizontal movements end up, you know, kind of paying off for trail running. And so I just love soccer and I loved tricks. So like, you know, moving the ball through your legs and stuff like that, I was really obsessed with that. So I think that kind of paid off. Um, and then also annoyingly, like I would play like on three to four soccer teams at a time, which now looking back, you know, it wasn't uncommon for me to play like four or five, six games every weekend. And I just thrived on that. Like, I loved that more like the mental challenge of it. Just, you know, finishing a game and having to reset no matter how that last game went. Um looking back, I'm sure that has something to do with long distance running. And, you know, growing up, I was never like a sprinter. And I just liked kind of just sitting in that one pace and just kind of grinding it out. Um, So yeah, just did youth track, did high school, you know, high school was a little up and down, you know, with becoming a woman and having to deal with that kind of uh, change in my body and stuff. And so that was a little tough. And then, came out the other end of it and uh, ended up choosing UC Santa Barbara because I wanted to run by the beach. And it just was a beautiful place. Uh, It wasn't then that I noticed the mountains, but obviously the mountains would become a big part of my life. And uh, yeah, my career there was not exactly how I I pictured it. You know, it was one of those programs where unfortunately it was like a lot of high mileage and kind of see who survives. Um, And so, I barely would squeak by. And so I just dealt with a lot of injuries. Um, but ultimately, you know, came out the other end not so stoked on running, and I ended up taking about a year off or so. Um, mostly just outdoor guiding and doing a bunch of other stuff besides running and uh got really into spear fishing, really into climbing, bought a motorcycle, was like <laughs> <laughs> doing motorcycle trips everywhere. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So are there any sort of childhood sporting experiences or any role models from maybe those soccer days or beyond that you look back at as being highly impactful or influential in the person that you've become any sporting heroes or, you know, people who you looked up to that you still sort of remember fondly?
1: Yeah, you know, as a child, like, you know, I had posters of Mia ham because I was really into soccer. Um, yeah, it was amazing. And, uh, just like the USA soccer team, like I really thought like that was going to be my thing. Um, I've even played in high school and got recruited for that too, but I ended up choosing running, but, um, yeah, honestly, I was always just more attracted to people in my community. Like I wasn't in a very, Wealthy community. I just was surrounded by hardworking people and families. And like, it, I just had such strong community ties, I guess. And so I like looked up to like my friends' parents and stuff. Like, I just thought everyone was, I, I don't know, I was just kind of honored to be a, a part of such a, I keep saying hardworking, but that's really what it was. And just good people. And so I think that really set the tone for what I am inspired by, which is like the people I'm surrounded by. Um, yeah. So not so many like sports stars. Yeah.
0: Very, very cool. Yeah. It's interesting that blue collar mentality and work ethic shines through in you, even though we don't know each other well, you know, I get that vibe from you. Um, so Tell me more about sort of like the collegiate running days. I have noticed a theme, you know, people who come on the podcast, of course, many of the guests have run collegiately, but most people I would say have had kind of like a less than ideal experience with their collegiate running career and for whatever reason, didn't give up on the sport altogether, but evolved into sort of the trail and ultra running world what do you attribute to that maybe theme that I'm touching on in my podcasting experience and maybe give us a little glimpse into your personal experience at UCSB and how that maybe launched you in the direction that you ultimately took?
1: Yeah, I think it's, um, it's kind of in a tough space with collegiate running. Like I, it's, I think more times than not, you know, like they get a collection of athletes and they want to just get the most out of them, you know, and it's not always so much long-term and, um, yeah, it, it's just, yeah. And, And they see who sticks. I think that's what it is. Um, and also, you know, it's the athletes that, want to run collegiately too. Like I recognize it in myself too. Like I showed up freshman trial wanting to be an all American and I wanted to be the best I could be. And, you know, you're attracted to a, a program for a certain reason. I was ready to run with girls that were, you know, faster than me and could push me. And so you commit to that hard work and you're praised when you are kind of just pushing yourself so hard every day. And I think there just be more praise of, you know, it's more of a push and pull mechanism, not an always push, push, push. Um, and so I think it's just easy to get caught in that. And then, you know, depending on the atmosphere of the team, it kind of, it like breathes upon itself. You know, you have all these individuals that have that same kind of mindset and are, aren't being held back. And so we all kind of push, push each other too far too.
0: Yeah. So then, post-collegiately when you dealt with the year of burnout where you stepped away from the sport a little bit when you came back to it was that when you started running mostly on dirt rather than around the track
1: (laughs) yeah it was uh it was yeah, I was on the thread that I was never gonna run again. I was never gonna count miles. like I was so over it. I was gonna like be a mermaid now, you know, just spearfish, eat my own food that I caught, you know, which is all great. I still love that. Obviously, I'm not by the ocean anymore. but um, yeah, honestly, what it was is I was outdoor guiding. I was doing like outdoor education and I really love kids, but I found myself just needing to kind of like also have my own space and like do my own thing besides just interacting with them all the time. Um, again, I love them. I just needed a little bit more time. And so I found myself kind of waking up in the morning and like going on walks. And I was also, you know, kayak guiding at the islands, the uh, Channel Islands. And so started with hiking. And I was like, well, maybe I could get a little further if I just jog once I'm at the top. So then I'd hike and then jog. And I was like, well, maybe I can like, jog up this hill. And I wasn't tracking anything, but I just found myself, I was like, well, this is pretty cool. Um, cause in college we did do hills, but it's always like, this is the training phase of hills and that's it. And then you do the other stuff. And I always liked them cause I, I liked the challenge of it. Um, so yeah, I just kind of like did that. And then, you know, when I would be at home in Santa Barbara, I'd be like, huh, maybe I could go run those trails. Yeah. And, Honestly, I was a really not safe person. I would not recommend what I was doing. I would always get stuck in the dark. I didn't know where I was going. But also, like, I feel like that just connected me that much more quicker to the trails. I just loved them. They felt so wild. And um, again, going back to, like, I'm not going to track anything. I was like, this is sick. I don't know how fast I'm going. Um, Yeah. So I just loved that. This makes
0: perfect sense now in hindsight. (laughs) It's funny, and this is just coming into my head, but like, I'm just kind of trying to think of an analog. And the first person that came to mind was Adam Peterman. And I think this is maybe something that sports marketing people should be doing who are working for various brands in the trail running space. But if you see somebody who has like a kind of a high performance track or cross country background, but who also has maybe an outdoorsy streak to them like yourself, even if it is spearfishing and kayaking, not necessarily trail running. I don't know the marriage of both that passion for the outdoors and the talent as a runner creates freaking great trail and mountain runners. And similarly, Adam Peterman, when he was on the show, he was telling me about how you know, he would just go peak bagging with his old man in Montana when he was a kid, you know, and he'd go on these long bike rides, like with Mike foot and stuff. And it, you know, just like those small life experiences that, that shape us ultimately touch and influence our athletic careers as well. And I think, uh, you know, in hindsight, you probably recognize a, maybe a benefit of all those years of, or maybe that time in the desert that you spent trying to find your love for the sport again. So another thing that's just sort of coming into my head now, Santa Barbara is, of course that's where the corporate headquarters are for Hoka. And and
1: that was just uh, luck. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I guess kind of like bring us full speed, full, you know, up to speed there with, uh, you know, sort of getting back into the sport, getting connected with trail running and, and with the brands that you work with now.
1: Definitely. And I did forget something, just to backtrack for a moment. It, in between my g- sophomore and junior year, I actually lived in Yosemite for four months uh, in college. And I remember loving that experience. So then, you know, post-college, I was like, this is, I didn't know this was a thing. Um, so yeah, that was another little, I guess, hint to myself I should have read into earlier. earlier. Um, so Deckers and Rabbit, uh, you know, this one, this one is uh, interesting because honestly I was just extremely lucky which is hard to say because I I know innately like now I I'm a very hard worker and like a like you make your own luck and stuff but I I really do think it was um essentially like I had done a couple trail races in the area rabbit had kind of contacted me post-college um and I I like sort of committed to them in a way because they they hadn't even launched yet like off of um I forget what it is like the funding thing and um they're like, Hey, we're thinking about making this apparel. Like, would you just like wear it? You know, if you end up deciding to run. So that was kind of a loose agreement. And then Hoka was actually after like my third trail race, they approached me and it was, do you remember the Las Portiva mountain cup? Yes. Yeah. So they had a race in Marin and they had pretty good prize money. The
0: Table rock challenge or is that what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, more-
1: exactly. And, um, like to me at the time, it's still a lot of money, but at the time it was like a lot, of, a lot of money. It was a thousand dollars. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I can live off of that for months. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I had it, I like had just started kind of running I was running maybe like once a week. And I told my friends, cause I happened to be going to San Francisco that weekend. It just all aligned. This is getting to the hook point, but, yeah. um, essentially I was like, Hey, I'll come with you guys, to San Francisco, but I'm going to like, get an Uber and like, go do this race. And I remember like two days before I was like, I should run more than 20 minutes. And so I ran 10 miles and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I could run a 25 K. Like I've never, I've never like raced that far in my life. Like I did five and 10 Ks. And so I did it and I won. And I was like, that was the craziest experience of my entire life. And David Roche was there, you know, now looking back, Maria Dalzot, there was like a few other people that were like very well known in the space. And uh, yeah, Hoka like sponsored me after that. And I was just like, well, wow, this is crazy. So yeah, that's how that happened.
0: <laughs> Unreal. Yeah. So I also had Monica DeVries on the podcast a while back. One of my favorite conversations in the history of the pod, I think. Who's of course the, the founder of Rabbit Apparel?
1: Yeah, she's and, amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if you would maybe provide a little commentary on Monica and her influence on your career and maybe in what ways that you guys have worked together over the years.
1: Yeah, it was kind of interesting. So her and Jill, you know, uh in the beginning days, like always talked to me, like we would meet at this pizza place. And so once they I'd gotten like the the, I remember my first contract with them were like, okay, we're going to sign you and this other guy in town. Here's like a paper, you know, and like going through this experience and like, we'd like you to like be officially sponsored by us. And I was like, well, this is cool. And, um, obviously it was like a woman led company, but even back then, like, they're just like, they're just such genuine women. And like, I just believed in them and in the direction that what, what they were trying to do and uh, innately like seen as a problem and just the vision they had for it. But also um, even back then, like they told me, they believed in me. They're like, girl, we see you, you doing the Strava stuff. Like you're going to do really good in this sport, you know? And I was like, cool. Really, were you
0: taking crowns all over <laughs> yeah. Coast, California? Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> just like in the Santa Barbara area, this is um, so
0: it speaks to like the change in sponsorship <laughs> dynamics, doesn't it? It's like you identify the up and coming talent by who's smashing the KOMs, <laughs> Bravo. Keep well, going though, yeah.
1: Well, especially for them because they live in the area, so like they were. Vi- Monica has been a trail runner forever. Jill had dabbled in or done trails for a few years too, so they knew what I kind of was doing. Um, so yeah, it was just really cool, and uh, it's been great to partner with them ever since.
0: Yeah. Well, very cool. And I think the type of people who will uh, be great to have in your corner, in your Rolodex, as you continue to mature in your career, both in running and in your tech job, probably too. I'm sure they could help you with (laughs) that sort of uh, career development as well. So Speaking of Strava, let's talk more about your training Um, because I would just, I just followed you today on Strava and I get the sense that you don't put all your workouts up publicly. You mentioned your coach a couple of times. So maybe just give us a glimpse into what you guys work on together, who your coach is and sort of anything that you think is interesting or relevant to touch on as it relates to your training.
1: Yeah, definitely. So my coach is Terry Howell, and he's still based out of Santa Barbara and talk about like meeting a person and just knowing their person that needs to be in your life. Like the first time I met him, cause I was also part of this like anti-running Danny phase. I never wanted to coach again. <laughs> I was like, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. And then finally I came around, um, and I was like, you know, okay, I want to coach. And, um, yeah. Just the first time meeting him, I was at a crossroads in my life, just going through a lot of changes as a lot of people do post-collegiate. Like, like who am I? What am I doing in life? What should I do next? Um, and he just has always kind of been like that beacon of light for me. He is just, just so positive so positive and just like a great person, you know? And I think it's really important, um, especially as runners and athletes in general, like we're so hard on ourselves. It's like just surround yourself with good people, but also people that are like good for you. And he just emulates that. And so I've been working with him for pretty much my whole career at this point. And what I really appreciate about him is he's never been selfish with me. Like he's always had my development in mind and has always just given me just a little bit at a time, even when I've asked for more, like he's always just done like inch by inch. And I, like completely tr- contribute, like me building this foundation to his methodology in that standpoint. So yeah, it's been, um, I think at when I, we first started writing again, it was like 40 miles, you know, and then over the years I've gotten closer to 50, 60, 70 now I've been dabbling in the eighties, which is crazy to think. Cause in college I ran hundred mile weeks. And so when I started working with him, I'm like, why am I not getting more mileage. And he's like, you don't need that. (laughs) Like we need, we need to build this slowly. And then, um, yeah, we've also just been learning together too, because he was primarily a road marathon coach. And so just learning like what works for me and like vert has been something that I've been very slow at developing compared to other mountain runners, I would say. Um, so yeah. And overall it's always been about keeping me as well-rounded as possible. And like, even though. My development may have maybe slower than some trail runners because I'm trying to check all the boxes all the time. I think it's helping me to like get stronger and stronger each year. So like it's always a goal that I should be able to run under 1630. So like that's one aspect of it. And for like five k, you mean for a five k? Yeah. <laughs> so fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then like on like tempos, I should always be able to hit X amount of pace. So if we can keep those like in the framework, then like the mountain stuff fits in between. And so I find that helps a lot.
0: Huh? That's really interesting. So then you keep the speed always sharp and then do the specific mountain stuff. It's funny. I just had Katie Shied on the podcast. And so this is two episodes in a row where a fantastic female ultra runner has articulated the fact that they've reduced volume and had better results at as a result. So, that's a I think a great lesson for our listening audience. Maybe to be a little bit more specific, let's talk about this season and what you guys have been working on in terms of your training blueprint. You started your season with a 10k at the GoPro Mountain Games and now you've just finished OCC and of course you did the Mont Blanc Marathon series and all in between. So, maybe you sketch uh, the arc of the training progression from that first race, that first trail race back in Colorado in June, I think it was, through the summer, moving from short distance to long distance.
1: Yeah. So, this year was the first time I ever started this late with trail running. Uh, I've always done something in the spring, and, you know, some of that was like, me wanting to just do some track and faster stuff. Other of it was um the fact that I live in snow now <laughs> and you know wasn't able to drive all the time down south um just with work and everything. And so yeah, we did like a track block and so going into GoPro, uh I really had no idea where I was, but I knew I felt strong. Like I just felt like I with work, I just try to do as much as I can as often as possible and just you know, I'm nice to myself when I can't. And so everything seemed to be firing. Like I was doing some weight stuff and hill repeats and like my track speed was still coming over. Um, and yeah, that race was just so nice to have. It felt like I just took a sigh. I'm like, okay, this is going to be a good year. Um, and the whole time we had outlined that it was going to be the races that you said with OCC being an A race and Mont Blanc kind of being like a check-in point. Mm-hmm. Um and we wanted to do something faster before Mont Blanc, because as you know, European racing, especially in that sub ultra distance, is just so fast. So yeah. got the legs moving, um, Mont Blanc, I was just so happy with, cause that was my first international podium. And, um, yeah, I just fought so hard for it too. So it was just very satisfying. It was a lot of back and forth. And like, I, I know there's like some videos and photos, but I was literally like, crying and paying the whole last part, um, to get that podium. And it just felt so earned, uh, which just makes it that much sweeter.
0: (laughs) I can't wait to hear all about it. Let's get to that. Maybe to linger on the training question a little bit more, you've mentioned now a couple of times the speed and the track talk about the sort of maybe track specifically and its application for trail performance.
1: Yeah. I find for me, you know, once a track kid, always a track kid. I just feel like it's really a good way to get feedback on your fitness. Um, and I think it just really is good um form reinforcement, just gets you to pick up your legs a little bit higher. I find that whenever I do like a big like trail block and I go back to doing something faster, like my arms just feel weird. Like you don't move your arms in the same way. <laughs> yeah. Um and so I think it just helps like with those habits and just it's like it's just, it's all overall engagement, different, like different glute engagement, different calf engagement, et cetera. Um, and yeah, I just, I like, I like the track too.
0: And you keep it throughout the year or is it something that you emphasize mostly in the winter months?
1: Uh, throughout the year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, like I think going into OCC this year in between, um, we might have done it. Yeah, we did it twice. It might not be on Strava. Um, but it, it was just like another um good uh reminder, like you know, being able to run five, 20 miles, like that's probably what's not on Strava, but like doing that at altitude just gives me like that much more confidence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I really want to talk to you about the Golden Trail series because it's something that I've become a huge fan of and like a lot of things in the sport it's bigger in Europe than it is here in the United States. And the races of course are sub ultra distance and therefore in a lot of cases just don't get as much of the media shine as I think they should, even though the live streams are absolutely phenomenal. Can you just paint the picture of the golden trail world series and what it's like to take part in it over the last couple of years?
1: Yeah, it's a, It's it's extremely competitive. It, it's um by far like each race I show up, like you have to show up as your best. And like Sears and I'll being a perfect example. Like I was dealing with some like mental stuff and you know, family stuff. And I got, I don't even know what place I got. I probably got like 20th or something, something in there. And that's just me being off my game, you know, like it just it's just so deep and competitive all the time. Like you need to show up ready to go. But for that reason, like, it just is such a a cool family. I just have uh, created so many friendships within it. And um, everyone is just... I don't know. I, I feel like you just see a lot of yourself in them. And for me, like noticing that in individuals that are representing different parts of the world um, it just has made me feel even more connected to the trail community. And so that's why I love it. Um, But it is, it's, it's so competitive. I'll just say that over and over again, Um, which that's why I love it. And that's why I decided to do it last year. Yeah. And this year.
0: And I think one of the big moments of, transition in a pro athletes career in trail running is the first time they go and race in Europe, it's almost like pro cycling where the courses and the culture and the atmosphere are just different. And it requires a bit of a learning curve. As somebody who's built experience racing over there in Europe. Are there any things that you would point to in terms of your learning and development about what makes racing in Europe different?
1: Yeah, I think it's, um, first off, like, I think we have a growing fandom in the United States, but I think there it's just a little older and more established. Um, so that's really cool. And it just seems like wherever you are on the course, like fans are engaged even for the short ones. And so I was explaining this to someone the other day is like, you know I'll be in a 30k and I'll be like, what place am I in? And I'll have like five or six people like yelling at me, like, oh, female five or female 10, you know. And I just think that's so cool. Um, but the another thing I, I've explained to people is that, you know, like in college or high school, you're like, oh, there's regular season racing and then there's championship style racing. I feel like European racing is always championship style racing. Uh so it's very aggressive. And so With that, I feel like I've been able to build out my playbook a lot more, which has been really cool as far as like different strategies and the way like in the US, I've always kind of been like a front racer, like very aggressive, like going out hard. And in Europe, I was like, oh, this is like, this is different and still learning to be able to do that and learn from racing in the middle of the pack and the back of the pack and just learning to read profiles more. Um, I think that's all of that is encompassing to my last year and a half of like consistent European racing.
0: Wow. I really love that articulation of it being championship level racing all the time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's nowhere to hide on the golden trail series. (laughs) (laughs) There's no easy wins out there. And you spoke a little bit about kind of the camaraderie between the professional athletes on the golden trail series. Of course, this is a theme throughout the sport, but maybe talk about the athletes you've gotten to know and who you look up to. Are there any things about the training or the lifestyle that you've picked up on from your European colleagues?
1: Yeah, I would say, uh, we're all just kind of in different walks of life. Um, it's kind of weird saying this, but like, I'm one of, I'm not the oldest out there, but I'm one of the older ones now, which is so weird to think of who's still focusing on that sub ultra Mm. stuff. And so, um, yeah, it's just so cool. Like, you know, hearing someone who's in school, uh, I have a friend who is an artist and does like art on cycling shoes and, uh, another friend who's doing like stuff at medical stuff. And yeah, it's just, recognizing that we're all more the, the same than different and in a way that makes it even more fun to be out there. Cause you're, everyone's just so extremely humble, you know, considering the feats that they're doing outside of running. And, and, uh, I think we all just recognize that like, we're all sacrificing something to be there. And so it, it creates like this extra cohesion.
0: Yeah. Does it ever frustrate you that the sub ultra distance racing doesn't get as much shine as maybe it should. I mean, that's just my subjective feeling <laughs> right? as somebody who loves watching Mount Marathon and who loves watching the Golden Trail Series races. But it does feel like it's harder to know as much about the athletes who are focusing on that as a opposed to Killian and Francois and Courtney and Jim and Tim Tolson and all the great athletes who focus on the long distance stuff. And especially with how deep and dense and competitive those races are, is there any sort of maybe frustration or resentment about the fact that it hasn't broken through as much, especially in the U S
1: yeah, I would say there definitely is, um, I've probably tempered myself more in the last couple of years. Uh, I, at first, I just didn't get it because, like you know, I came from the world of track, where like every event is, I in my opinion, is just so cool and like get you know the hundred is almost cooler at times, you know, for some people because it's more relatable than like a five or ten k. But you know, like track overall, like all the events kind of get equal love, which I think is awesome. And so you know, being in the sub ultra space. Um, yeah, I'm just like, you know, this is cool. Like ultras are really cool, but this is cool in a different way. It's a different style of racing. Um it delivers its own punches. Um but yeah, I think I think it's picking up. Um I maybe it's a I feel like for the average viewer who maybe is new to the sport, like ultras are just so different. And I don't blame them compared to what we already have offered to us in in the space of running. Like we have road halves and road marathons, et cetera. And so you see, oh trail half trail marathon, like that's cool. Oh, 50 miles, like that is so different. Um, but I hope that changes because yeah, I uh I feel like sometimes in the sub ultra space, like we know how hard it is and it doesn't like get that same love. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it's changing slowly but surely. I think I'm sure Solomon and the Golden Trail series have all the data to (laughs) have that subjective feeling up. But I think it's a massive opportunity right now to for the sport in general to get behind the shorter distance running because it really does. I mean, it speaks to the general population in a way that UTMB or Western States never will and just that it's a lot more approachable and the stories and the drama of the racing and the yeah just the level of the athletes that are taking part in it. it has all the ingredients of being a worldwide mm-hmm. phenomenon. The Free Trail Podcast is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition. Are you tinkering with your race day nutrition strategy? Are you finding that the nonstop consumption of energy gels and chews leaves you with intense taste fatigue and sugar overdose? Well, I have some advice for you, something I've done for years now. That is drink your calories. I've tried everything on the market and I am here to tell you that not all drink mixes are created equal. The Gnarly Fuel 20 drink mix is by far the best that I've tried for both taste and energy supply fuel 2o is the bomb especially the cherry cola flavor that is my absolute favorite it has all the carbohydrates the electrolytes the amino acids to power you along your trail adventures two more things that make it amazing. One, it is NSF certified for sport, so you don't have to worry about unintentionally ingesting any banned substances. And two, they come in both multi-serving bags and single-serving pouches. I typically use the big bag, but in case I use a single-serve stick in a race or a long training run where I need to refill my bottles, the sticks are actually easy to open. It's a miracle. We've all fumbled with drink mix pouches that are impossible to tear open on the run. (laughs) Is there anything more frustrating? Well, Gnarly somehow solved for that too. So go grab some Fuel 20 drink mix at gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off your purchase. Gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15. So let's talk about your season. And before we go into the specifics, maybe just generally, would you agree that this year has been a bit of a breakthrough for you?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I think for anyone who has been following me, like it, like maybe isn't too much of a a surprise. I don't know for me, like it just followed the trajectory, but yes, I feel like in the trajectory now I've like made a jump over a line, which has been pretty cool.
0: What do you attribute that to?
1: My coach, you know, and also just me kind of leaning more in and, and committing more time. Like again, going back to that space where I like, wasn't even sure if I wanted to coach or keep running. Like when he first started coaching me, I was just kind of all over the place too. He had to wrangle me a bit, um, to get me like, no, Danny, like you can't go and spearfish for five hours and then expect to have a good workout. You know, those sort <laughs> of things. Um, and so, you know, I would say like in 2019, I kind of started leaning more in and like 2020 was kind of a interesting year where I was leaning more in, because obviously I moved up to Mammoth, um, but had no way to kind of measure it. And then I would say like, last year, I was like, well, all right, let's lean more and more. And so I think just being patient and listening to my coach and really learning from him, I think has helped with that a lot.
0: By leaning in, what do you mean? Just being more committed, more professional?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Just you know lifting weights and doing injury prevention and uh just being allowing myself to cuz i was like this in college like i was a student of the sport but i would say now like i'm a professor of the sport like i just read and consume so much and like and and p- apply it to myself and i I'm not scared to fail anymore, which I think has helped a lot. Whereas like before I would tread lightly with things because I wanted that perfectionism to kind of be illuminated. Yeah.
0: Wow. How do you overcome that feeling? Because people who are perfectionists are often perfectionists in absolutely everything and they carry it with them for their entire lives. How have you been able to kind of separate yourself from that need to be perfect?
1: Um. I think just i <laughs> I think I just like gave myself perspective and and looked back and I realized that like I've learned more from my failures, you know, like, especially the low moments. and so just it's not that like I want them all the time, but just like not being scared of them, I guess, is when it comes down to it. and um, sometimes it takes like consistently trying things to see if it's gonna work out, but then if it doesn't work out, like. You'll learn from it.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about calendar construction. I just had Katie shot on the show and we talked about it with her. And I felt that maybe it would be interesting to chat about with you as somebody who focuses on the shorter distance stuff. You mentioned before that you and your coach had drawn up the calendar as it's materialized. In other words, you did the GoPro 10K, you did the Mont Blanc Marathon, you did Sears and all, and then you did OCC. So maybe just for the listener, provide some context as to how you as a professional athlete sketch that out with your coach and how those races sort of fit together holistically.
1: Totally. So I'll preface this with when I first started trail racing, I raced way too much. So that is definitely a lesson that I learned pretty quickly uh, where I just never had gas by the end of the year. And so um, I would say like, going into 2020, I had actually constructed something and obviously that didn't come to fruition. Um, and so what we do is like, when, whenever the calendar comes out, I will take all of the series races and like dump them in a spreadsheet and then I'll like have some identifiers in the columns. So like date, distant, expected duration, elevation, like I get into all the details. Um, and then From that list, I'll like pick my a races. And so this year, one, one of the a races is OCC. And so we pick that race and then I'll do like a work back schedule. And again, this is learning from racing way too much. And so kind of like constructing it in a way, like that's like a marathon. So you'd want to do like a half marathon, like at like a minimum of four weeks before, um, And so, you know, we kind of looked at, okay, is there a way to get to Chamonix before OCC? Mont Blanc Marathon, that's perfect because I had golden trail, like, you know, all highlighted in blue. So I could do that. Okay. Unfortunately, I'm going to need two more golden trail. Fortunately, dang it, Sears now. Should we do Sears now? And then, you know, I went and I did some research. I'm like, well, Ruth Croft and Blondine both ran Sears now before OCC. We'll give that a try this year and just see if that works for me because I plan on doing OCC again next year. Um, So that one like wasn't ideal. So that was more of like, let's see how this goes. Uh, And then before Mont Blanc, it was kind of the same concept of like, okay, let's work back four to five weeks, three weeks, whatever we can find. Okay, cool. There's either the Broken Arrow VK or GoPro, Broken Arrow's too close. We'll do GoPro. Yeah. So it's kind of a succession like that. And then building in, um, time to recover, I think is really important.
0: Wow. Very, very interesting. Thanks for walking us through that. So let's talk about the mom marathon because of course it's the same weekend as Western States and it always (laughs) lost as a result. This is one of my biggest pet peeves in the sport. And I shout it at everybody who will give me the time of day to listen it's irresponsible for the Mont Marathon <laughs> and Laboreto and Western States to all be on the same weekend. They should be split on the three weekends and we would have the ultimate three week trail running party
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway, but it was so cool, you know, kind of as I was getting caught up on things, just being like, bam, American Danny Moreno on the podium at the Montauk Marathon. And to me, you know, as somebody who, is a recent follow of yours who doesn't know you personally. It felt like that was like a huge result for you. Talk about that and what led to that amazing result and in what ways has it maybe changed the way you view yourself in the greater context of the trail running, uh, community?
1: Yeah, it was, um, it was definitely like surreal in the moment, you know, obviously you're like taking it all in and, uh, like that finish line, I, it, it just kind of crazy to be honest. Cause last year I got fourth in like a, a golden trail race. And I remember that feeling of like, yes, I, I'd made the final and I was like, but I wasn't like, I was just that close to like an, an international podium. And that, that was like a, it's like similar to Zagama and Basque country. And so going into this year, that was like a big goal of mine. It's like, I would really like to get on an international podium and um, even thinking back to like years before when I did like some USA races, it was like, I was like top 20. And then the next year I was top 15. And then last year I like got into a top 10, like the first race. And I was like bawling because I was like, coach, we did it. I made it into a top 10 in an international race. And he's like, I'm so proud of you. And it's just so crazy how like, you know, you get into and you're like, okay, what's next. And then, you know, I got into a couple top fives. And so anyways, getting onto the podium, finally, it just, it just felt so good. Cause we, again, it was just that progression and to feel like you're just doing what's right for you. And like, feeling like I had done done all the little things and I wasn't taking shortcuts. Like I was doing, doing all the things I needed to do to get there. It just felt so validating, but also just like so happy for like, again, everyone that had supported me. I'm like, see, you guys believed in me. And like, now I get to share this all with you. That was a really cool feeling.
0: Amazing. You said yeah. a little while ago that you now have multiple playbooks that you can draw from. So maybe... Trawl upon that <laughs> of those those arrows in your quiver. What was the playbook that led to the success that day?
1: Oh man, this one. Okay, this this is a bittersweet moment. So yeah, so um, for those that don't know, like Mont Blanc this year would like started out with like <laughs> flat in mountain running terms, it just means that it's runnable uphill <laughs> uh, for like ten to twelve k, and then there's a very steep ascent, very steep descent. And then you do more climbing up to left, and then you have one last descent, which that was new this year. Usually they just end at the top. Um, and so we had no concept of time. And so the week of the race, everyone's kind of guessing. And I you know, looked at the profile most of ta- a lot of times with my coach and I was like, you know what? If people aren't ready for, if they burn themselves on that downhill, then they might not have climbing legs for that whole last part, which is actually you're not, you're like at halfway point of that race. Mm -hmm. So if you burn your legs, you still have like over two hours of work. Um, and so, you know, I I was kind of like in the top six going up the climb. And then I think I like came in at like ninth and I got to the bottom and I just, I trusted myself, but also I was like, I really hope this works out because I had so many people find, Oh no, I wasn't fourth and moved back tonight. That's what happened. So I got passed by like five five people people.
0: on a descent
1: and they're flying. And like, I love descending. And I, I knew I was like, just hold back, just hold back. Mm. It'll work out. And again, this was just from racing last year. I had done a similar thing in the final where I let some people go on like the steepest descent. And, um, yeah, then I just got to the bottom and just let's, go to work. And I just like started hauling butt and, uh, just climb, climb, climb. And I was like, this is going to work out. This is going to work out. Trust, trust, trust. And, you know, starting to go up, um, from our chair. I think this was before we got to life leisure. I was like, Oh yes, there's a person. Oh my gosh, here's another person. And like, I was just moving so much quicker that I was like gaining confidence from that. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, me and forth, like basically the whole downhill or there's like this part where it's kind of runnable. We were going back and forth and she's, she's amazing. Her name's Ana Sabrier. Yeah. And I was like, she is not letting up. And so I just kind of like put an extra gas on the downhill and, uh, nutritionally, I probably should have eaten more looking back because yeah. I started getting tired. And then she came out of nowhere with like I don't know. It, it probably was like just over a mile to go. And I was like, what the heck? But also just like, you go girl, but I'm yeah. going to get on this podium. Like I've not like worked this hard <laughs> to lose now. And I just hauled and I just, I, the video says it all, but I am like, I'm leaning so forward. Cause I have nothing left. I'm just going purely off of gravity. Yeah. And yeah, I think I beat her by That's like
0: 1630. 5K comes in. Thanks, yeah. Coach. Um, yeah.
1: I think it was like five minute pace, the last 800. Like I was just going as fast as I possibly could. Um, so, yeah, that was a good feeling.
0: Wow. And just tactically, just going back to the question I asked you I mean, what a great moment in your career. What a great learning experience to have that trust to let those women blow past you on the descent and gain all that time back and more on the remainder of the course. On a practical level, this is one of the things that, I'm curious to hear you talk about is the travel component because you do have a real job and it seems like you have to bounce back and forth now between home and Mammoth Lakes, California, which is not an easy place to travel to and from and various locations on the European continent. That could be seen as a fairly big disadvantage, I feel like, and you sort of alluded to the fact that maybe that had something to do with the fact that Sears and all didn't go Great. So just wherever you want to go with that the travel involved with racing on the Golden Trail circuit while also having to maintain your normal life here in the US.
1: Yeah, um it's hard just like straight up um I found that there's like two things I learned last year. One, I need more than 3 days. Like, I don't know, there's some people that could show up like 3 days before and they're golden and I am not I one of those week. people. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm the same. I need like a week ideally, if I can get a few more days. Cool. Like I've gotten lucky with some holidays, like national holidays sometimes. Yeah. Um, but what I try to do is I'll leave the weekend before like either the Friday night after work or Saturday so that I get there on Sunday and then I have that week to, you know, settle in. Um, but I actually like work a lot um over there. And so like, For example, Mont Blanc, I think I got there. I left straight from Colorado because like you mentioned, like Mammoth is not easy to get to, like with Reno, especially. And so since I was already going to Colorado, I just left straight from there to Mont Blanc. So I was able to get there a little bit earlier. And so I worked like pretty much every day until two days before the race. And that's tough because I work mostly up until like midnight or 2 a.m. Um, so yeah, it's one of those things that I just it is what it is. So yeah. work with it, not against it. Um, I just have to adjust my sleep for a couple of days. And then as long as I could give myself a couple of days to, you know, get on the schedule. So waking up at 6 a.m. isn't alarming. Um, it is what it is. Um, so yeah.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. And yeah, I, I guess the best thing is yeah, to not work against it, not let it get in your head and just deal yeah. with it. So maybe provide a little bit more color as to Sears and all you know you've sort of it seems like you've learned something from that disappointing performance what is what are the things you learn
1: um just <laughs> I am I am human like everyone else I I lost someone really close to me like a couple of weeks before the race and had to actually share a name with them and it just was someone very very important to me mm-hmm. and um just a pillar in my family just going back to that community like I I adore my family. We love each other. Um, I was very lucky because of that. And so when we lose someone, we all feel it collectively. And um, yeah, so the services were the week of the race. And, you know, looking back, I'm just like, Danny, (laughs) you should have lowered your expectations. But in in true Danny fashion, I was like, no, I can can do that. I could compartmentalize it and then I can race. And what I ended up doing is I I just found myself kind of anchoring myself as a rock for my family. And I, I grieved, but I didn't like fully let go. And, you know, I felt like I was kind of like holding it all in. And then I was like, just make it to the race. And then I got to the race and I was like, huh, (laughs) I am not okay. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, the race starts and you're, you're in it. And, you know, usually like I, um, what's it called I, like I'm very much like a mental runner like I feel like I can push a lot and I just got to the hard parts in the race and I just like had nothing to get by I, I was exhausted yep. um so yeah that that was a tough one for me because years now you know just it, it was it's a race I've been waiting to do for years but at the same time like you know being there with my family was just so more important and mm-hmm. um yeah so I had to reset after that, you know, going into OCC. And so that's actually what made OCC so much sweeter is, you know, going through grief, you know, and, and, um, being able to show up.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. So yeah. maybe keep going with that, the bounce back. It was only two or three weeks between Sears and all.
1: And uh, OCC- 10 days, I think.
0: 10 days. <laughs> you, you did not come home in between those two races, did you? Yeah,
1: no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no. So, so talk about the, the bounce back there, because of course, after disappointing performances, oftentimes we get negative with ourselves psychologically. It's hard to believe that we can perform to our expectations again, especially at one of the world's most competitive races like OCC. How did you adjust your mindset to set you up for success? at OCC?
1: Yeah. I think the biggest thing for me is I was flooded with love, you know, (laughs) from my family, my friends and colleagues in the running space. And it just, um, it made me feel just incredibly grateful, you know, that we get to do this thing and, um, be in these places. And I felt like for me, it, you know, I definitely took a couple days to sulk in it for sure. And, in the end, this is partially because this person, but their life just meant so much to me. And I was like, you know what, like, we need to celebrate this damn thing and like go into this race. Like I, I always, my goal was always to podium, but it, essentially it was like, go have as much fun out there as possible. Like all these people are going to love you no matter what. And, you know, part of Sears and I felt like I would let people down and, um, like going into OCC, I was like, you know, if you could just cross that line with like a finish, like a smile on your face and you had a good time. And like, this was the first time running that far and it's distance. I was like this, just take in the experience. And as the race develops based on like the plan that we put in, like if it comes, if it, if it comes to fruition, like it was meant to be. And so, um, yeah, I just like took the steps towards that, which was really, really nice. Yeah.
0: So. Maybe to ask you the playbook question again, of course, OCC was the longest race of your career, only the second time doing fifty k and it's a hard freaking race yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what was, was so the, what was the playbook that led to this awesome podium
1: um it was it was um so something that we've been adopting more so this year is uh gaining confidence throughout the race. so that's how I raced Mont Blanc because mm. as I catch people like I I kind of just fuel off of that. Um, and so going into OCC, you know, going in humble. I mean, this was, this was the first time I've ran that far in this long, like by far and going in with an open mind and just uh, the plan was, you know, the, it's like a short climb. Don't waste climbing legs on that. That is just the beginning. So that was the part there. Just enjoy it. Um, all of it was enjoying, but yeah, just power hike as much as possible up to champagne and then the next two climbs to like see how the field is doing like a pulse no matter like what place I was in and so on the climbs I would push a little bit and see like who was going with me and so that was very intentional and then on the downhills like almost like recovering. Cause again, I love downhills and I love smashing downhills, but I just have learned at least for where I am in my career right now, like just saving the legs a little bit f- more. F- so for the transitions and like crescendoing into the crux of the climbs instead of like attacking the climbs from the bottom. And so it was kind of just like, I am, am, also I love music. And so like, to me, it was kind of like an orchestra, like building and letting it go, crescendoing, and like letting it be like a soft build and teach thing. Whoa. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah.
0: Orchestrating a symphony out there in the <laughs> in the Swiss and French Alps. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful, Danny. So I mean, I think that is a brilliant thing. Everything that you just said is so smart and I think deserves to be highlighted because I think the transitions between the uphills and the downhills. Are an underrated moment in every race, you know, because especially in the professional fields, like people when they get to the bottom of the climb, they carry the momentum too hard from the descent instead of letting them their climbing muscles turn back on and build into the climb and crescendo, to use your words. They, you know, burn the extra matches at the bottom, just trying to carry the momentum. And also just taking the downhills a little bit easier, just going back to you know, how I've always raced. And especially at hard rock last year, I think that was absolutely the thing that helped me the most was I just ran all the downhill super easy because I knew there was so much downhill and I wanted to be able to hike strongly in the last couple of climbs. And I think that's just brilliant. So I think you, was it, wasn't it also like Mont Blanc marathon where you didn't come into third place until kind of the bitter end?
1: Yeah. And, and like to your point, exactly too, at the downhills, like you do have to, you have to be pretty good at downhills for like something to feel easy, right? Like Mm -hmm. compared to what might be racing for other people. Um, so I think that's important to note too. Um, Mm -hmm. but I totally agree with the transitions and like that actually like is my coach now, but also my high school coach taught me that, which is just so cool. Um, Yes. Yeah, so the, the plan, the entire time we looked at the profile and we decided the new climb in the middle. I don't know if you had a chance to look at that, but there was a completely new middle section. Yep. Yeah. And so that part, like if you look at it, it looks like it's up and then kind of runnable, but I was actually able to run that the in between weeks and it's quite technical. Like there's some really steep drop offs very very narrow st- single track a little bit of boulder hopping and it's uh it's a slight climb still the entire time so if you like burn your legs on those two climbs going into uh going after champagne and then uh trient like that is such that's like n- 90 minutes of racing right there where you can just feel like death and the race can change um and so i just remember going into trient and you know doing the crescendos or whatever, and um like asking how far the podium was, and people are like, it's pretty far, like it's 15 minutes. Um and I was actually just so content. I was like, okay, 15 minutes, I can do that, you know? And that to me, again, is just experience racing, you know, especially the last couple of and a half, where if you had told me that like three years ago, I would have been like, all right, no podium today. Um but just like knowing what was left too. I was like, I can do this. And so going after Treant, we had planned that would be the move, you know, the, the move to push me into the podium and then gut it out. And, um, yeah, I, I told my coach, I think that's some of the best climbing I've ever done. Like, I just felt so in rhythm. I felt like we did a lot of back-to-back long runs and i just felt that really coming in where it was uncomfortable but it was very familiar like it was a a discomfort that i had gotten used to Mm -hmm. and i just like started eating up you know that middle part of the field which was really cool it was like 10th 9th 8th i'm like oh this is awesome Mm -hmm. and um made it up to the col de blom and then i was in fourth and i felt good um good for where we were in the race and uh yeah then descended kind of saw third for a second she's a very strong descender she ended up second nuria joe and uh i think we ended up we were probably because it's a long downhill. i think we were like four or five minutes apart on once we got to the bottom maybe three or four and then you cross and you go to Argy and tear and then um It just started to get hard, but I'm sure as you've, it's like... you just tell yourself, you're like, just move faster. Like you don't need to be (laughs) moving the fastest.
0: (laughs) Just go faster.
1: (laughs) Just go slightly faster than what your body wants to do. And I just told myself, just run as much as possible. And uh, yeah, eventually, you know, I moved into third right before La Plagere, like that that climb. And I was in such a dark space, but I just was hyper-focused and I was like, you're in a 55k. Like you knew, I knew that was going to happen. Uh, yeah. so that was completely new territory for me. Um, and yeah, I think at that point I was like two and a half minutes from Nordia, who was second, got to the top and then ended up being like a minute by the bottom. So made up some ground. Super,
0: close. Super, yeah. super close. So maybe uh you've alluded to it a couple of times but provide an illustration of the suffering that ensued in the <laughs> 10K, the, the weeping the cursing any detail that you can add
1: Um I just I get- I don't know if this happens to you, but I find the more pain I'm in, the more hyper-focused I get. And I just notice the craziest little things like in the ground, especially if you're going uphill, because you're just like power hiking and you're in this weird flow state. That's also like painfully therapeutic. And I just remember like looking at grains of sand as I was going up and just, I was like, just make it to the top. That's your final aid station. And, um, going back to this being like my first long race, like I definitely made a mistake up there. Like I should have taken more time and I'm not beating myself up about it. I'll just fix it next year. Um, but yeah, that was definitely something looking back. I'm like, yep, probably should have eaten and drank more water. Cause then that last descent was much longer. It's different than the Mont Blanc marathon. Um, and I just remember this gentleman running with me with a GoPro and he's like, come on, come on. And I was just like, dude, I might look okay, but like, if I fall, I don't know if I'm going to get back up. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, you made yeah. it. You I made, made it. it. Yeah. For an incredibly impressive, proud podium performance at your longest race ever, your first OCC. And yeah, just another great mark on your resume and a great place to continue to build from. So congratulations for that. So looking forward a little bit, I was just making my fantasy picks for the Pike's peak ascent and the Flagstaff sky peaks race. And we were talking about the golden trail series earlier in our conversation, what's ahead for you in the rest of the season. I noticed you weren't at the Pike's peak ascent. I was sad to see that, but you (laughs) signed up for, for Flagstaff. So tell us what's ahead for you.
1: Yeah. So we're doing Flagstaff. Um, I, I, I probably wouldn't be doing it if, if Sierra's and Alison didn't go as it did. Um, but I would, I still want to be competitive in the final. So if I want to do that, I, I should take that third race. Um, but yeah, we're actually, we're, fo- we're really shifting to the final. It's a, it's a five day stage race and Uh, I do plan on doing like a longer distance next year after OCC and then it'll be like OCC something longer and then I'll be done. Um, and so this, I, we're seeing this as like a good stepping stone to have, I don't know, somewhat of a ultra experience maybe. And, uh, yeah, I'm just really excited about it. So yeah, I'll do Flagstaff, the stage race, and then I'll, I'll finish out the year or be done.
0: So are you automatically qualified for the final already, or do you need a certain performance at Flagstaff in order to get to Madeira?
1: I am qualified um but I'm telling myself I'm not because I don't want to race like that yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) on paper I am though
0: (laughs) well cool well then maybe last question for you you just teased it a little bit and we've lamented the fact that everybody's always talking about the longer distance stuff and trail running, but I have to admit it's where my passion is too, even though I love as a fan following the sub stuff and everything that you do. How do you envision the long-term for your career as somebody who's taken a really patient and methodical approach to how you can, you've constructed everything thus far? And how are you thinking about the potential step up to the longer distance races?
1: Yeah, that's um, I, I am. I am excited about it. It's like the first part of next year will still include like a lot of sub ultras, and probably the next years after that. I just, you know, going back to, I just love that racing. You know, like it, it, it is very much methodical and intentional. But also, I just love being out there for like two hours or less than three hours. Um, it, it's aggressive. It's it's fun. You kind of just like throw yourself off of stuff that maybe you wouldn't in other situations that are time pressing. Um, so yeah, I'll definitely still include those, but I had like, it's hilarious, I think. But when I first signed with Hoco, they said, what are you going to race in the next year? And I was like, Oh, I'll probably do like Western States or something. And (laughs) five years later, (laughs) I still haven't done it. (laughs) Um, yeah, next year. So OCC, I'm either going to do one or for sure next year, maybe even a third year. Cause something about me, like, again, going back to the ultra thing, I think it's really cool when people are able to get in like the top 10 of Western, like years in a row, like that is so impressive. But like, to me, a really cool goal is like, can I get on the OCC podium three years in a row? Like, -hmm. I don't know if that's been done. Like, like, it's just like to have that much, um, focus on that that 55k distance I think would be cool um but next year I'm looking at um what's it called Les templier like after OCC
0: that is a race that's a cool race I tell everybody I know about it. I did it in 2016 it was one of the worst performances of my career and I loved the race like I love that (laughs) I absolutely (laughs) recommend it it's sort of like the TNF 50 of France, you know, the old North face championship. It's a big deal in France. It's always super competitive. There's big prize money on the line. And it's also kind of has the vibe of like the end of season party. It's a fantastic event. Like Tom is a must do thing for everybody who's listening. So
1: hundred percent agree. I mean, I've, I've looked at YouTube videos a couple of years now. I was like, that's, that's, that's the one I want to do.
0: <laughs> that's really smart too. I think just from a calendar construction perspective, like we were talking about earlier, it's good timing, you know, based on the fact that you do plan to return to OCC, use that as a strength and endurance builder for when you then up, step up to about 50 mile distance, which is the important race at Lake Toplay or the most competitive race at Lake Toplay is about 80 K. So that's really smart, Danny. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear that.
1: Thanks. Well, yeah.
0: I think that's that's about all the questions I had for you. It's been super, super duper fun to, to get to know you a little bit more as somebody who is a recent follower and a, now a new big fan of you. Congratulations on an awesome season that you've had so far in 2022 and good luck with Flagstaff and the world final Golden Trail Series in Madeira.
1: Thank you so much. It, that means a lot coming from you. Um, so I appreciate it very, very much so.
0: Thanks to Danny. That was a super fun chat. Make sure you go follow Danny. I have links to her Instagram in the show notes, along with a link to her Strava activity from the amazing third place performance at OCC. So click through, give her a follow on both platforms as we spoke about in the conversation. Danny is racing this weekend at the Flagstaff Sky Peaks 26K. So send her a DM and wish her luck. If you enjoy Free Trail, please do consider joining Free Trail Pro, the global membership community for passionate trail runners for those who are members jump in the slack let me know what you thought about the episode the free trail slack channel has been so awesome to be part of and we hope you will join us so thank you to our sponsors speedland best footwear in the game visit runspeedland.com grab a pair of the slhsv before they disappear forever gnarly nutrition thanks so much to these guys use code Free trail 15 at gonarly.com for 15% off your order of any and all of their amazing nutrition supplements. Another awesome episode with UTMB second place finisher Mathieu Blanchard is coming next week, but that is it for now. Thank you all for listening. Love you so much. Bye-bye.